Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of child abuse, sexual harassment, and domestic violence. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. The grieving mother knew the terrible truth. Her daughter had been stillborn 10 years earlier, the same day the papers said Shirley Temple was born. The shared birthday was a sign. Shirley had stolen her daughter's soul and killed her. Now the mother needed revenge. On Christmas Eve 1939, when Shirley Temple performed live at a choral show, the mother procured tickets. From her seat in the middle of the crowd, the mother waited as the 11-year-old star took the stage. Shirley began to sing, and the grieving mother withdrew a gun from her purse, rose to her feet, and took aim. Before she had a chance to pull the trigger, a group of bodyguards spotted her. They tore through the seats and seized the gun. The woman didn't struggle as the bodyguards dragged her out of the theater. Despite the ordeal, Shirley never missed a note. She was already eight years into her career and had learned to never break character, even when her life was threatened. Shirley knew that her own safety came second to one ideal. No matter what, the show must go on. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. In this show, we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. 
Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. This week, we'll take a look at Shirley Temple, one of the movie industry's first child stars. After she began her film career at the age of three, Shirley presented a wholesome, youthful image to film audiences. But behind the scenes, she suffered cruel work conditions and was a frequent victim of sexual harassment, even as a child. She left the acting world behind at age 22 and went on to have a successful career as a politician and international ambassador. Today, she's remembered not only for her cheerful childhood performances, but for her global activism and philanthropic work. Shirley Temple was born on April 23, 1928, in Santa Monica, California. Her father, George, was a banker, and her mother, Gertrude, was a housewife. Although Shirley had two older brothers, the 10- and 12-year age gap meant she wasn't close to them. From an early age, Shirley was a boisterous tomboy. Her mother struggled to keep her calm, quiet, and behaved. In 1930, when Shirley was two and a half years old, a customer at George's bank offered a solution. Enroll the girl in dance classes so she could direct that energy into something more constructive. Shortly thereafter, Shirley enrolled at Ethel Meglin's dance studio, which was designed to help very young children get a foot in the door in Hollywood. The school regularly hosted dance recitals at film studios, where executives would scout future talent. Shirley showed a gift for the performing arts early on, especially for mimicry. She could watch a teacher demonstrate a dance once, then emulate the moves perfectly, no practice necessary. Shirley was only three years old when, in 1931, she was recruited for her first on-screen role. She was enthusiastic to take a turn on camera, and Shirley's parents, feeling the pinch of the Great Depression, eagerly accepted the paying job on their daughter's behalf. Shirley's first roles were hardly star-making. She wasn't paid for the time she spent in rehearsals, and on shooting days, filmmakers rushed through production as quickly as possible to keep the actors' rates low. Her first contract was to appear in a run of adult comedic shorts called Baby Burlesques. The series featured parodies of the popular features of the time in which all the roles were performed by toddlers. Much of the humor lay in young children, none any older than five, navigating risque adult situations. Shirley's first speaking role was in War Babies. In this short, the three-year-old portrayed an adult dancer caught in a love triangle between two soldiers, also played by diaper-clad toddlers. In another short, Politics in Washington, four-year-old Shirley played a sex worker hired to seduce a senator. As unsavory as these roles now seem, apparently they didn't raise any eyebrows for the crew or for Shirley's parents. However, George and Gertrude never suspected how poor the conditions were on set. Every filming day, the young child actors were separated from their parents. The crew claimed this was because on-set parents were a distraction to toddler performers. In truth, the filmmakers were strict and abusive. In order to get their cast to perform correctly, the director used cruel physical punishments to keep the children on task. 
As Shirley would later explain in her biography, time is money. Wasted time means wasted money means trouble. When child performers misbehaved or failed to perform to expectations, they were regularly shut in the so-called punishment box, a dark cube with only a block of ice to sit on. The freezing cold space had no windows, and once the door was shut, the child was locked in a frigid, lightless void. There, the offending performer had no choice but to wait for the crew to decide to let him or her out. In order to help the child actors find their marks on set, the crew put colorful pieces of tape on the ground. However, the children weren't permitted to look at the ground while they were being filmed. On several occasions, Shirley missed her mark or broke her eyeline. For her mistake, she was shut in the punishment box. Soon, Shirley learned to find her spot by feel. The marks were the best-lit parts of the stage, and Shirley could tell by the heat of the lights on her face whether she was in the proper place. She not only determined the best places to stand, but also the perfect angles at which to tilt her face to achieve perfect on-camera illumination. This skill helped Shirley stand out from the other actors. Later, when she'd enter the world of legitimate films, her talent for seeking the light helped make Shirley a star. But for the time being, she was just happy to avoid the punishment box. However, Shirley would face other challenges on set. Without parents around to keep an eye on set, the producers of Baby Burlesques cut corners around their performer's safety. Shirley wasn't permitted time off and even had to perform the day after undergoing ear surgery. On another occasion, Shirley injured her foot but wasn't permitted to stop filming until after she nailed her dance scene. In one short, the director needed his actors to all fall down at the same time for a death scene. Worried they wouldn't be able to hit their cue, the director strung a tripwire across the set. As a group of three, four, and five-year-olds raced toward the camera, they all, in a mass, fell down together. Luckily, they avoided serious injury, but the tactic was startling and cruel. And, it seemed, all for naught. Soon after Shirley's shorts were released, the production company, Educational Pictures, went out of business. The end of baby burlesques coincided with the rise of the Hayes Code, mandatory censorship restrictions that were designed to ensure that Hollywood movies were morally upstanding. There was no better time to be a young, innocent-looking starlet as Hollywood films took a turn for the wholesome, saccharine-sweet, and child-friendly. In 1934, Shirley was cast in the role of Shirley Dugan in the movie Stand Up and Cheer. It was her first named and credited feature role. While Shirley's character was minor, this performance would jumpstart her career. Shirley's mother, Gertrude, feared that her five-year-old daughter was already too old for the part. She forged a birth certificate and told the film's directors that Shirley was only four. The lie was so convincing, Shirley believed she was a year younger than she really was for nearly a decade afterward. 
Stand Up and Cheer told the story of the fictional Secretary of Amusements producing a variety show in order to uplift the spirits of Depression-era Americans. The plot was mostly a series of loosely connected framing devices to showcase song and dance numbers. In addition to her musical performance, Shirley also had to act on camera. At one point during filming, the director struggled to get Shirley to cry on cue. Finally, he ordered Gertrude off the set, then told the five-year-old that her mother had been kidnapped by a monstrous evil man. As the terrified Shirley began to sob, the director called action and got the shot he needed. Stand Up and Cheer was released on April 19, 1934, days before Shirley's sixth birthday. Critical reception was middling, but almost all the reviewers agreed. Even in her minor bit part, Shirley Temple stunned. She was destined to be the new Hollywood it girl. For the rest of the year, Shirley was in high demand, appearing in box office winners like Little Miss Marker and Now and Forever. But she didn't reach the pinnacle of fame until the Fox Film Corporation offered a role written just for her. In late 1934, six-year-old Shirley accepted the role of Shirley Blake, the star of Bright Eyes. The movie told the story of recently orphaned Shirley, who was adopted by a cruel family, but always dreamed of flying on an airplane. At the film's climax, Shirley performed a song called The Good Ship Lollipop on a stage dressed to look like the interior of a DC-2 passenger plane. For her airborne scenes, Shirley got to ride an airplane as it taxied back and forth across Grand Central Terminal's runway in Glendale, California. Bright Eyes proved a massive success. By this point, Shirley had already headlined seven feature films in 1934 alone. But it was this movie and its original song, Good Ship Lollipop, that cemented Shirley's place in the Hollywood pantheon. With the success of Bright Eyes, Shirley Temple became not only a movie star, but a brand in her own right. Movie studios commissioned collectible dolls, and her signature blonde ringlets became mainstream fashion. Hollywood's Brown Derby restaurant began serving a signature mocktail made of lemon-lime soda, grenadine, and a maraschino cherry. Like its namesake, the Shirley Temple drink was sweet, wholesomely alcohol-free, and soon became wildly popular nationwide. But stardom had its downside. When Shirley's mother took her to visit Santa Claus at a local shopping center, he asked Shirley for her autograph. Shirley realized that the man was simply a performer like herself, and the six-year-old stopped believing in Santa. Shirley didn't have much time for such childish things, now that her family relied on her financially. Because her movie career was far more lucrative than her father's earlier job at the bank, her parents soon focused on managing their daughter's career full-time. While her mother Gertrude accompanied Shirley to film shoots and auditions, her father George handled negotiations and managed her money. George secured salaries for each parent and agreed to place Shirley's portion of her earnings in a trust fund, which she could access when she turned 21. At six, she was officially supporting the family. 
At home, Shirley's parents strove to protect their daughter from the negative effects of notoriety. They refused to buy Shirley expensive new toys. She was kept on a strict monthly allowance. When fans sent her gifts, her parents confiscated all of them. They claimed that not only did they want to avoid spoiling their daughter, but they were also fearful that an obsessive fan might try to kidnap or otherwise harm Shirley. She was safer when the public was held at a distance. Shirley's parents loved her, but they also had a keen interest in protecting their financial asset. Studio executives and Shirley's parents worried that she'd lose her star power as she aged. Eager to produce as many films as they could while she was still young, she was caught up in a whirlwind of back-to-back-to-back productions. Over three years, from 1935 to 1937, Shirley starred in 11 different feature films. In order to meet the strict demands, Shirley's crew frequently skirted child labor laws, sometimes forcing her to work through the night. Because of her busy filming schedule, Shirley couldn't attend school and was instead educated by on-set tutors. Shirley's protective parents rarely allowed her to go out in public, and she never made friends her own age. A lonely child, Shirley sought whatever connection she could make with adult co-stars and film executives. Needless to say, they weren't ideal playmates for a child. Many of them would force her to grow up much faster than she should have. As she aged, Shirley would learn the cost of fame, youth, and lost innocence in Hollywood. Up next, Shirley's career takes a decline as she fends off sexual harassment. Now back to the story. Coming off the success of Bright Eyes in 1935, six-year-old Shirley Temple was one of Hollywood's biggest stars. That year, she unseated Clark Gable as the most lucrative actor in Hollywood. On set, Shirley was a favorite of directors and co-stars. She never lost her youthful skill at mimicry and developed a reputation for her ability to nail a scene in a single take after a director or choreographer walked her through her lines and dance moves. As hyperbolic as it may seem, Shirley Temple was credited with single-handedly lifting American spirits through the Great Depression. Even President Franklin Delano Roosevelt publicly said, As long as our country has Shirley Temple, we will be all right. Meanwhile, those around Shirley began to fear that the stress and pace of her career was harming the young girl. But Shirley insisted that she'd chosen this path for herself. She even claimed that her parents had tried to persuade her to quit, but she was the one to insist on following her Hollywood dream. After her star-making turn in Bright Eyes, Shirley went on to a role in Curly Top, where she sang the now-famous song, Animal Crackers in My Soup. Later that same year, in The Little Colonel and The Littlest Rebel, she filmed iconic tap dance scenes with tap dancer Bill Bojangles Robinson. Unfortunately, Shirley couldn't escape Hollywood's lascivious impulses. Her parents grew concerned by the reviews that one novelist-turned-movie critic published about Shirley. In 1936, when Shirley was eight, Graham Greene wrote in the British magazine Night and Day, Some of Temple's popularity seems to rest on coquetry. 
and on an oddly precocious body that is voluptuous in gray flannel trousers. Later in 1937, Green wrote another suggestive review of her work. She wore trousers with the mature suggestiveness of Dietrich. Her neat and well-developed rump twisted in the tap dance. Her eyes had a sidelong searching coquetry. Shirley's studio, 20th Century Fox, sued Green for libel. Before the case could go to trial, Green fled the country, relocating to Mexico. His magazine, The Night and Day, lost the 3,500-pound lawsuit, the equivalent of over 250,000 U.S. dollars today. Some believe Green's movie reviews were intentionally provocative. He played up his foe's sexual attraction to Shirley in order to criticize and satirize the way the film industry commodified child stars. Other film critics take Green's reviews at face value. His case wasn't helped when he was publicly quoted using a misogynistic slur to describe the nine-year-old. Green wasn't the only member of Shirley's audience who was fixated on her appearance. As she aged, the film studios began to find ways to preserve Shirley's youthful looks. As she lost her baby teeth, she had to wear dental plates and caps to fill in the gaps in her smile. In order to maintain her girlish blonde curls, Shirley had to sit still every night while her mother rolled 56 curlers into her hair. During the lengthy beauty treatment, Gertrude ran Shirley's lines with her. Once a week, to lighten Shirley's hair, Gertrude melted laundry soap on the stove and scrubbed the warm mush into her scalp. To rinse away the suds, her mother would then douse Shirley's head with vinegar, which got into her eyes and made them sting. But Shirley's feigned youth came at a cost. In 1939, Shirley was almost murdered by a troubled woman who believed Shirley had stolen her deceased daughter's soul. In truth, Shirley was a year older than the daughter, but because Gertrude lied to the press about Shirley's age, the mother believed Shirley and her daughter were born the same day. The woman pulled a gun on Shirley during a live Christmas-themed radio show. She was apprehended by the FBI and her identity was never released to the public. Despite the stir, that year and the next, Shirley had two consecutive low-performing movies, 1939's The Little Princess and 1940's The Blue Bird. In 1940, when Shirley was 12 years old, 20th Century Fox dropped her contract. Luckily, Shirley was still enough of a draw that she had a shot with other studios. Eight months after she lost the Fox deal, Shirley's father, George, negotiated a new contract with MGM. Unfortunately, he failed to anticipate that there was a hidden cost. Twelve-year-old Shirley sat down for a one-on-one -on -one meeting with producer Arthur Freed during her first visit to the studio. Her mother, Gertrude, was scheduled for a talk with studio head Louis B. Mayer in another room. Officially, Freed was supposed to pitch Shirley on his next movie while her mother was occupied. But while Shirley was alone and unchaperoned, Freed said, I have something made just for you. He followed up the comment by unzipping his pants and flashing his genitals at Shirley. The girl was young enough that she didn't fully understand what was going on. 
As she later explained in an interview with Larry King, I'd never seen anyone naked before except myself, so I had no clue about what was happening. And it struck me so funny, I laughed at him. In embarrassment, Freed threw Shirley out of his office. Her laughter may have saved her from far more serious aggression. While Shirley was alone with Freed, her mother Gertrude encountered similar impropriety from Louis B. Mayer. Once he had Gertrude alone, Mayer promised her that she could be as famous as her daughter. He put his hand on Gertrude's knee. Gertrude didn't need to hear any more of what Mayer had to say. She stormed out of his office and found Shirley in the lobby, freshly ejected from Freed's room. The mother and daughter stomped out of the studio. During the drive home, Shirley recounted to her mother what had happened. Gertrude just listened, and when the story was finished, she said that once their contract was complete, they'd no longer work with MGM. While Shirley navigated the harassment, her career continued to take a downturn. The adolescent couldn't compete with her five-year-old self. And in spite of weekly vinegar washes and Castile soap scrubs, Shirley's iconic blonde curls were turning brunette. But it wasn't all bad. By 1940, the loss of her superstar status allowed 12-year-old Shirley a chance to finally live like an ordinary girl. Her filming schedule had slowed enough that she could enroll at the Westlake School for Girls. It was the first time in her life that she attended a real school. She had the chance to make friends her own age and learn what it meant to have a normal life. She didn't always succeed at being normal. After a lifetime wearing short skirts and heavy makeup on camera, Shirley struggled to adapt to the school's strict dress code which required modest clothing and banned makeup altogether. Still, Shirley relished school. She received good grades and threw herself into extracurricular activities as though she was trying to maintain her old, breathless movie-making pace. At first, Shirley struggled to relate to her peers, but her natural charm eventually won over her classmates. By the time she reached high school, Shirley had decided she wanted to be the first girl in her class to be married. She attributed this desire to her innate competitive nature. Shirley's mother, who'd married Shirley's father at the age of 17, supported the impulse. In 1944, 16-year-old Shirley met a classmate's older brother, 24-year-old Army Air Corps Sergeant John Agar. Their courtship was brief and hurried, in April of that year, mere days before Shirley's 17th birthday, Agar proposed and she accepted. The engagement didn't spare Shirley from workplace harassment. When she was 17 and preparing for her wedding, Shirley performed in a film produced by David O. Selznick. The other women on set warned Shirley about Selznick's aggressions. They said that he had a habit of removing his shoes before he made an inappropriate move. In spite of her best efforts to avoid him, Shirley still found herself alone with Selznick in his office one day. She grew nervous when she noticed he was sock-footed. When Selznick tried to grope Shirley, she turned and ran for the exit. But Selznick had a button installed in his desk that allowed him to remotely lock the door, trapping Shirley inside. 
Luckily, a lifetime of dancing left Shirley equipped to evade the producer's advances. After several long minutes of darting away from him, Shirley finally escaped when Selznick grew bored with the chase and let her leave. In spite of Selznick's harassment, Shirley continued to return to set for the rest of the production and even worked with the producer on subsequent films. She was under contract and didn't see any alternative. In her autobiography, Shirley detailed several other unwanted advances during this part of her life, but didn't name names. One thing was certain, though. Even as an underage actress, she had to be constantly on guard against groping, attempted assault, and other unwanted sexual attention. In 1945, when Shirley was 17 years old, she married her fiancé, John Agar. She'd achieved her goal of beating her high school classmates to the altar. Almost immediately, Shirley learned that Agar was unfaithful. In an interview with Public Radio's Diane Rehm, Shirley recounted how the couple went out to dinner just 10 days after their wedding. When the band began to play, Agar spotted a beautiful blonde woman across the dance floor and left Shirley sitting alone while he danced with a stranger. Shirley watched, stunned into immobility, as her husband shared a passionate kiss with her in the middle of the dance floor. Shirley couldn't believe Agar would be so flagrant. And in that moment, she resolved to do whatever it took to keep her husband. She'd spent her entire life believing that any problem could be solved with more convincing performances. Now she applied that lesson to her life, trusting that if she acted the part of the devoted wife, she'd be rewarded with a loving, loyal husband. Instead, she got used. Soon after he said his I do's, Agar signed a contract with Shirley's producer, David O. Selznick, the same man who'd earlier trapped her in his office. Although Agar had no experience acting, his marriage to Shirley brought him to instant stardom, and he too embarked on an acting career. After a barrage of acting classes, Agar performed opposite his wife in Fort Apache in 1948. As was becoming standard for Shirley, the film didn't meet expectations and was considered a flop. Agar tried to distinguish himself from his wife, appearing in westerns and science fiction features, but he never managed to headline a hit. Shirley, too, struggled to recapture her earlier glory. Even though Shirley was struggling, Agar grew to resent his wife's fame. To cope with growing insecurity and jealousy, he began to drink. Alcohol brought out Agar's belligerent side. He would come home drunk and physically violent. And the more time went on, the more Agar drank, and the more dangerous he became. Hoping it would save their marriage, Shirley and Agar decided to have a baby. On January 30th, 1948, their first daughter, Linda, was born. Just a year later, Shirley and Agar finally divorced. Their marriage had lasted four years, none of them happy. Reeling from the divorce and struggling to keep her career going, Shirley relied on parental support and her substantive trust fund. But by 1950, Shirley would have both ripped away from her. That's when she learned of a family betrayal that left her 
with nothing. Up next, Shirley loses her money and resolves to reinvent herself. Now, back to the story. By 1949, 21-year-old Shirley Temple was a freshly divorced single mother. Once the biggest star in Hollywood, now she could barely book an audition. As her career dried up, Shirley felt increasingly dependent on her trust fund. On her 21st birthday, Shirley was supposed to gain access to $3,400,000, the equivalent today of nearly $37 million. But 1949 came and went, and she didn't receive the payout she'd expected. Finally, in 1950, 22-year-old Shirley finally asked her father about her finances. That's when she found out her account only contained $44,000. Further investigation revealed that Shirley's father, George, had ignored the stipulations of Shirley's contracts. Instead of putting half of her earnings in a trust fund, he'd made a series of poor investments and bad loans. He'd squandered almost all of Shirley's earnings. Rather than respond with anger, Shirley accepted the loss of her fortune dispassionately. She explained in her autobiography, for reasons some may find inexplicable, I never felt disappointment nor anger. The timing couldn't be worse for Shirley to cope with the news that she wasn't as wealthy as she'd believed. She barely auditioned, and she was bored of being typecast as an innocent, wholesome ingenue. The movie industry just didn't hold the excitement it once had. Shirley toyed with the idea of retiring, but didn't know what else to do to support herself. Just months after her divorce was finalized, Shirley visited Hawaii, and met Charles Black, a former Navy intelligence officer who'd settled there after World War II. After a brief flirtatious conversation, Black asked, What do you do? Are you a secretary? As she chatted with Black, Shirley came to realize that he'd never seen a single one of her movies. His ignorance of pop culture was like a breath of fresh air. For as long as Shirley could remember, she'd been a public figure. Around this man, she didn't need to live up to her reputation. She could just be herself. They returned to California together. Twelve days after they met, Shirley and Black were married in his parents' home on December 16, 1950. Soon after their wedding, Black was called back into naval service in Washington, D.C. Spurred by this opportunity for a fresh start, Shirley agreed to officially retire from the movie industry and move with him to the East Coast. And after a lifetime of living on a strict budget, Shirley was able to easily adapt to the lifestyle Black could provide for her. While she'd retired from acting, Shirley wasn't done with the entertainment industry as a whole. While based in Washington, D.C., Shirley developed and produced a children's series called Shirley Temple's Storybook. She was 29 when the pilot premiered on January 12, 1958. The television show adapted fairy tales into child-friendly television bits. Shirley hosted the series, introducing every segment. Meanwhile, Shirley's world was getting bigger. She grew more involved with Republican civics and sought the spotlight again, this time as a politician. 
1967, 39-year-old Shirley Temple Black ran for a California Congress seat. No woman had ever held the office before, and during her campaign, the Associated Press quoted Shirley as saying, I think men are fine and here to stay, but I have a hunch that it wouldn't hurt to have a woman's viewpoint expressed in that delegation of 38 men. Shirley lost the election, but found a new passion in the public sphere. In 1968, 40-year-old Shirley volunteered with the Federation of Multiple Sclerosis Societies. She found that her fame helped her bring attention to worthy causes. In addition, Shirley's lifelong skill with mimicry made her well-suited to quickly adopt foreign customs and avoid international scandal while traveling outside the country. In the summer of 1968, Shirley traveled to Prague to encourage Czechoslovakian leaders to get involved with the Federation of Multiple Sclerosis Societies. She arrived with a team of diplomats on August 17th. Shirley was unaware of the instability brewing in Czechoslovakia. Days after her arrival, the Soviet Union invaded. Shirley found herself confined to her hotel for safety as chaos reigned outside. On August 21st, as Shirley was finalizing plans for an emergency evacuation, she glanced out her window to see tanks surrounding the hotel. From the relative safety of her room high above the fray, Shirley had a front row seat as the Soviet government brutally put down the democratic resistance. That same night, Shirley watched as a group of peaceful protesters marched down the street passing the Soviet officers. One protester, a middle-aged woman, shouted and shook her fist. In return for her disrespect, the troops shot the woman in the stomach, killing her. Shirley was stricken by the woman's quick, violent death. She had never seen something so inhumane. In that moment, she resolved to devote herself to international politics. Like the characters she'd portrayed as a child, Shirley focused on opposing communism and advancing American values worldwide. The next year, in 1969, Shirley was appointed to the United Nations General Assembly. Soon afterward, Shirley represented the United States as an ambassador to Ghana. In the years that followed, Shirley became a frequent fixture in the world of politics. Her earlier fame as a child star served her well, as she was able to leverage her celebrity to open doors that were otherwise closed to even seasoned politicians. While she threw herself into politics, Shirley also continued to make her mark in the United States. In 1972, doctors diagnosed a strange lump in Shirley's left breast as cancerous. She had to undergo a mastectomy when she was 44. In the 1970s, public attitudes towards breast cancer were significantly different than those today. Women were considered too emotionally fragile to handle the truth about their medical diagnoses. It was common practice for doctors to lie to their own patients, supposedly for their own good. Then, under the guise of performing a routine biopsy, the doctors would instead give the patient a mastectomy without her consent. Only once the woman came out of surgery would she learn that she'd had cancer and had received an extreme treatment. 
Luckily, Shirley's doctors broke from standard practice and informed her of her diagnosis. Shirley agreed to undergo a mastectomy, then held a press conference to discuss the procedure from her hospital room. Shirley became an outspoken face of breast cancer survival, helping to destigmatize the condition. In interviews and essays, she detailed instructions so that women could perform self-examinations. More importantly, Shirley also campaigned for doctors to be more honest with their patients. She criticized secret mastectomies, saying in an interview with McCall's magazine, the doctor can make the incision, I'll make the decision. In the following decade, Shirley continued to hone her political instincts. She served as the State Department's Chief of Protocol from 1976 to 1977, the first woman to ever hold the position. Shirley then went on to work as a foreign affairs officer throughout the majority of the 1980s. She served under President Ronald Reagan, another former actor-turned-politician, who'd shared the silver screen with her in her teenage years. In 1989, President George H.W. Bush appointed 61-year-old Shirley the ambassador to Czechoslovakia. It was her first time back to the country since she'd witnessed the Soviet invasion. As the first female ambassador to the country, Shirley befriended Czech President Václav Havel and helped negotiate a meeting between him and President Bush. By the mid-90s, an aging Shirley left the public sphere to enjoy her retirement years. She remained happily married to her husband Charles until he passed away in 2005. According to reports from her friends and family, Shirley was active right until the end of her life. She relished opportunities to give interviews and planned to write a follow-up to her 1988 autobiography. Before she could complete the new book, Shirley passed away on February 10, 2014, at the age of 85. Unlike the stereotypical child stars who dominated the headlines, Shirley Temple had seemingly risen above her childhood conditions. She was well-adjusted, financially stable, free of drug use or any obvious mental illness. The young girl who lifted a nation's spirits during the Great Depression had risen above her own darkness as an adult. After years of onset abuse, sexual harassment, and the loss of nearly all of her earnings, Shirley Temple worked to make the world a better place through her political advocacy. Her life proves that while every story has a dark side, the light can still shine through. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we'll be back to explore the dark side of The Wizard of Oz. You can find all of podcast shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. This episode was written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>